The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is hosting its family-friendly summer series, Terrific Tuesday Nights, every Tuesday from June through August from 5 to 8.30 p.m. This series allows the Northwest Arkansas community to experience the garden on beautiful summer evenings free of charge. Entertainment and activities will be planned each week. More information available at bgozarks.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, July 12, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellens, and this is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later this hour, do you remember what you did for your eighth birthday? The Scott Family Amazium is celebrating its eighth soon, and we'll explore what the plans for the day include. First, a committee of seven women in the small town of West Fork authored an ordinance, the first of its kind in the state, to enable cultivation of beneficial wildlife habitat on private property. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met with the committee spokesperson in her backyard habitat to bring us this story. West Fork, which is located along the spring-fed West Fork of the White River, has a population of 2,400 and is filled with historic homes, old shade trees, and lots of gardens. Bonnie Stitt and her family settled in the heart of West Fork in the winter of 1997 into a quaint blue bungalow, planting fruit trees and gardens which have taken deep root into the fertile river bottom soil. Little chicken yard right here on the left. And then I wanted to show you my my new development, which is bees. We, I've had some honeybees that just moved into my yard on their own. The bees taking up residence in an old hive. Two more hives have been built to accommodate them. They're attracted here because of the blossoming fruit trees, blueberry bushes, flowering vegetable, and native plants. Resident hens, Big Red, Mandy, and Little Bit monitor us as we wander through. Um, back here we have a pecan tree, an apple tree, Asian pear, wild plum, and we're growing a little sweet cherry right there. There's also pawpaw, serviceberry, elderberry, and a mulberry tree laden with purple fruit which stains our fingers. Those are so good. Those are amazing. Those are the best mulberries mm-hmm. I've ever eaten. Aww. We walk past ripening sweet corn and tomatoes through a white picket garden fence surrounded with flowering bergamot into a vegetable garden filled with lettuce, spinach, and squash. The yard measures three quarters of an acre, most of it cultivated, buzzing with bees and lots of butterflies. Thank you for complimenting me on my yard, but there are gardeners in this town that outshine me. It's a, it's a gardening town. We take shelter from drizzle this cool summer morning under a garden cottage porch to enjoy some fresh mint iced tea and discuss a recent controversy regarding West Fork's property maintenance code. I was not even aware of the original ordinance until the trouble began, which was um, a resident grew a wildflower meadow in his front yard, right in the very, very main street that everybody sees when they enter West Fork. And I heard that there were some complaints about that and that a code enforcement officer had come by and asked him to mow. That was last autumn. In late December, she was contacted by a member of a West Fork Garden Club telling her to watch a city council meeting on YouTube where Mayor Heath Cottle discussed a possible revision to the city's property maintenance ordinance in an attempt to satisfy both turf and garden enthusiasts. This is a suggestion that uh, something along the lines of, uh, in section 3.14, West Fork recognizes the importance of pollinators and other beneficial insects, etc. cetera. Uh, the creation of a designed vegetation bed is permissible. Defined vegetation bed uh, will have a distinct border separating it from uh, the main yard, uh, will be maintained, manicured, 
and cannot consist of an area totaling more than maybe a quarter of the total yard size. Uh, and no single bed could be larger than, say, 100 square feet. Bonnie Stitt says she was dismayed by what she saw. Dismayed because uh, the mayor, Heath Cottle, was actually suggesting some uh, measures that I thought seemed really restrictive to me as a gardener. The main one being that um, we wouldn't be allowed to have over 25% of our yard in gardens. So last January, she asked the mayor and city council to appoint a committee of West Fork gardeners to study the issue. Selected were master gardeners Jane Bryant and Peggy Merringer, planning commissioner Elizabeth Hale, watershed activist Stephanie Reynolds, beekeeper Jane Steinkraus, local garden member Emily Walker, and Bonnie Stitt, who together drafted an alternative ordinance, which she presented to city council in April. So together we have studied <coughs> regional and national landscaping legislation, environmental issues, and nationwide gardening and landscaping trends. And in creating the document we're presenting to you tonight, um, our goals have been to protect West Fork residents' freedoms to garden and landscape in a variety of ways, while also emphasizing the importance of landscaping that's maintained and intentional and to provide clear guidelines for code enforcement of neglected properties. After legal review by the city attorney, the ordinance was approved by city council on June 13th. Misty Cottle? Yes. Jeff Upton? Yes. Jan Throgmorton? Yes. Marty Lindeberry? Yes. John Collins? Yes. Don Rollins? Yes. Jimmy Condon? Yes. And that motion carries. That has been approved. Thank you to the yes. committee for all of your work. Yes. Thank you so much. Very much so. Stitt says adoption of an ecosystem-friendly property maintenance code traces back to a meeting held last October with city officials and several permaculture experts. Permaculture encourages self-sufficient, sustainable agriculture. Uh, my grandpa had about a, uh, a two-and-a-half-acre garden, and, and so I grew up gardening. West Fork Mayor Heath Cottle, turns out, is an avid Ozarks gardener. I think that's the important thing to note here is that the city was, that was the whole reason this was on the agenda was we, we recognized that our ordinance was, was limiting um, as far as a, a definition of, of what, what was a good um, alternative to turf grass landscapes uh, within the community. And so, so I was fascinated that, that we had a, a resident that was interested in taking on a project like this, uh, Bonnie put together a, a fantastic committee. Uh, they did great work. They they didn't simply uh, take on a project that was agenda focused. Uh, they they really looked um, through the different uh, areas and topics that concerned uh, what we were trying to do. Uh, you know, it's it's important for a city to be able to maintain some some maintenance controls to make sure that, you know, yards aren't just uh, growing up and, you know, uh, deteriorating property values for their neighbors and things like that. But it's also important that, that a city recognizes the importance of pollinators and, and what role they play in, in the environment. And uh, I, I just think the committee did a fantastic job of, of looking at this from multiple angles and, and coming up with a great ordinance uh, in, in, at the end of it. Bonnie Stitt says the lead sentence in the new ordinance is deeply meaningful. West Fork is committed to creating a healthy and beautiful environment for its citizens. So we wanted to get a good balance between health and beauty. Encourage people to focus on the health with supporting pollinators. She says the city attorney issued an opinion after researching their draft ordinance prior to passage. Tom Kicklack said that this ordinance is very cutting edge, at least in the state of Arkansas, and I'm very proud of that, that our little town has a cutting edge ordinance in support of pollinators. West Fork's new landscape code, it says, draws in part from the National Wildlife Federation's Guide to Passing Wildlife-Friendly Property Maintenance Ordinances. We queried the nonprofit. Patrick Fitzgerald, Senior Director of Community Habitat, emailed that while managed native habitat ordinances are on the rise nationwide, 
most municipalities continue to lag. He suggests West Fork officials should now offer public education as well as code enforcement training to avoid conflicts between turf advocates and habitat gardening enthusiasts pointing to the Federation's online tip sheet on neighbor-friendly wildlife gardening. As for that nuisance wildflower plot complaint that precipitated West Fork's amended property management code, meadows are now legal to grow in town. Meadow vegetation, grasses, flowering broadleaf plants, um, meadow and prairie plant communities, yes, it does. As long as, you know, it's maintained in terms of, you know, not including noxious or invasive weeds. Drafting the ordinance was an ordeal, Stitt says, but in the end, enlightening. What has been for so many years to me something that felt like just a selfish hobby, gardening, now that I've learned about native plants and the whole idea that we can save the world in our own backyards, it has just taken on so much more meaning. It feels like a meaningful sort of life saving, world-changing work. Leading her to pursue a larger mission. I got interested in the local political scene and I want to be, I wanted to be on the planning commission and they voted me in. So now I'm on the planning commission and I'm looking forward to having more involvement. I feel like we have a really neat group of people doing cool things in West Fork and I want to be a part of it. And we'll see what new plans unfold under her watch in the garden town of West Fork. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. If you want to share this story, we've made it easy to do so. You can go to ozarksatlarge.com and find all of our pieces with links that help you send them to others through email or social media. And you can keep up to date with what's been on the show with our free Ozarks at Large newsletter. We deliver it to you for free each weekday morning. It includes information and quick links to everything that was on the show the previous day, as well as other news from us and from NPR. You can sign up for that newsletter at KUAF.com. For a year now, the KUAF Lunch Hour has been bringing you the best in local music and local food once a month here at the KUAF studios. Now we're taking it on the road. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series. It begins in late July and will include three tiny desk-style concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts will lead up to a mini-festival called Lunch All Day in September. Performances are set to include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. Get ready for a summer of fun, music, and great food. The KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, begins July 28th. Keep listening to KUAF, your public radio station, for more details. Still to come on this edition of Ozarks at Large, Sam Davis is a legendary figure from the Ozarks of 200 years ago. In the 1820s, when hardly anyone was in Newton County, mm-hmm. and settled there, married, started a farm and lost his mind and started to preach off of a bluff uh, near Mount Judy Mm -hmm. um, that's come to be called Sam's Throne. His story is part of a new CD and book about Newton County legends from Aaron Smith and the coal buyers. And in about six minutes, Aaron Smith talks with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis about the project. We have to continue to carve out a space for Blacks and African Americans to really feel fully invested in our community here in Northwest Arkansas. Mm. On the latest episode of The Beloved Community, a podcast with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF, Hosts and council members Chris Seawood and Lindsay Leverett Higgins discuss the council's efforts to develop strategies aimed at improving black life in Northwest Arkansas through a new electronic census project. What is it that we're missing in Northwest Arkansas that is a vast need, a desire for people in our community? Mm. We want to make sure that we're connecting with the community so that the data really has an opportunity to speak and to tell the story. 
Listen to the beloved community for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she plans to help school districts pay for increases in property insurance premiums. Yesterday, the governor said schools are suffering from rising costs of insurance premiums, with increases averaging about 130 percent. The governor called the increases outrageous and said insurance companies are, quote, trying to line their pockets on the backs of Arkansas children and taxpayers. To cover the costs, the governor authorized the state of Arkansas to cover 30 percent of the increases. The money will come from the state's restricted reserve account upon legislative approval. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences was recently awarded a million dollars by the Federal Communications Commission. The unlikely pairing has a common goal, providing affordable and accessible broadband Internet to all 75 counties in Arkansas. Roy Kitchens is the executive director for UAMS's Institute for Digital Health and Innovation. He says the intention for the funding is intensive and intentional outreach. So we will have boots on the ground approach going to every county within the state. We will be attending outreach events and we're in the process of identifying all of those events as we speak. The money is specifically funding the outreach efforts to raise awareness and introduce people to the FCC's affordable connectivity program. The program provides subsidized internet service as well as a one-time discount on internet-connected devices like laptops and tablets. Households are eligible for the program if their total income is at or below 200 percent of the federal poverty guidelines. However, the FCC has struggled with adoption rates, which is where UAMS comes in. Kitchen says this funding will give UAMS more opportunities to connect with local community partners. We will be going to partnering with the housing authorities. Uh, We will be partnering with the libraries. We will partner with schools and attending outreach events so we can touch those people where they live. More information about the Affordable Connectivity Program can be found at FCC.gov slash ACP. Three Arkansas-born storytellers of note will appear together at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art later this month. The museum announced this morning Oscar-winning actor Mary Steenburgen, Emmy-winning playwright Qui Gwynn, and Peabody-winning filmmaker Craig Renault will participate in the Southern Storyteller Session on July 30th at 5 p.m. The event is a co-presentation of the museum and Arkansas PBS. Free tickets are required and can be reserved at the museum's website or by calling 657-2335. The just-opened U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith will use a $500,000 gift to support interactive training simulators in the museum. The gift from board member Cynthia Coughlin was announced yesterday. The simulators are in the What Does It Take to Be a U.S. Marshal room at the museum. The museum opened to the public earlier this month. The yet-to-be-open-to-the-public Eureka Springs Museum of Art will host a pre-opening party Friday evening. The museum of approximately 3,500 square feet is in the Eureka Springs Community Center in what used to be the cafeteria when the complex was the original Eureka Springs High School. Steve Beecham, the chair of the new museum, says the museum will collect, preserve, and exhibit work from both historic and contemporary Eureka Springs artists. Our um, concept with it is to have a minimum of what we're calling 15 rolling walls that are uh, four by eight by four feet and basically can be use use them to reconfigure the shape of the museum kind of at the drop of a hat. And each wall will have art hanging on it as well as art around the the outside uh, periphery of the space. Eureka has attracted artists since the late 19th century. Beecham, who operates Spring Street Pottery, says the museum will accommodate large and small exhibitions as well as seasonal art shows to raise money to support the archival preservation work of the Institute as well as living artists in Eureka Springs. And our kind of ambitious goal with the museum is to have art representations from 1890 through to the present day. And uh, we will begin the uh, chronological part of the of the art 
with photography, which in the 1880s and 1890s was a fairly new uh, art form. And one of the interesting things about Eureka is that um, some of the more well-known photographers here, Lucy and Gray is one in particular that we're focusing on, um, he would give tourists cameras to take while they were on vacation here and they could take their photos and then he would develop the film and make them into postcards for them. The museum space is undergoing renovation. Tours will be offered Friday evening from 5 until 7. The Starter Museum has a six-year lease with the nonprofit Eureka Springs Community Center in anticipation of establishing a permanent institute. A formal opening is expected by late summer. The Razorback volleyball team is picked to finish fifth by the SEC coaches. The poll released this morning puts Kentucky at the top. Arkansas finished tied for fourth in the SEC last year. The 2023 season begins August 25th at home against Michigan State. This is Ozarks at Large. Sam's Throne is a popular hiking destination in Newton County. It's named for Sam Davis, a man who lived in the area in the 1800s. Sam's story has become the stuff of legend, and a new release by local songwriter and musician Aaron Smith sets his and other stories from Newton County folklore to song. The Legend of Sam Davis is not just an album of music, though. It's a full-length CD combined with a 90-page book filled with artwork, maps, photographs, and other ephemera to help tell the stories from Newton County's past. Last week, Aaron Smith came to the Herald and Blanchcock News studio at KUAF to talk about the project with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. Their conversation began with a bit of background on the story of Sam Davis. Well, Sam Davis initially was a young man. Some accounts say that he was in Kentucky, some in Tennessee, and some in Mississippi. Probably Mississippi was right. And the story goes that Sam's sister was abducted by Native Americans in the 1820s, and he tracked them all the way to Newton County, Arkansas. And so we're talking hundreds of miles. I tracked him, you know, over all these different landscapes and then lost the trail in Newton County in the 1820s when hardly anyone was in Newton County mm -hmm. and settled there, married, started a farm and lost his mind and started to preach off of a bluff uh, near Mount Judy mm -hmm. um, that's come to be called Sam's Throne because right. he preached off of it. And his sermons were not uh, love and light. <laughs> they were judgment and fire. And and uh, in time, he carried on. He did that for the remainder of his life. Mm -hmm. But the story goes that in, in time, he was in the woods. He was hunting, and he heard a woman looking for a cow followed the voice, and it was his, his sister. So he was reunited with his sister in time. Mm. And he became a little more outrageous in his behavior, claimed that he was going to live uh, for a thousand years. He claimed that he'd buried gold on top of Sam's throne, mm. and then he disappeared. There are some like more historical accounts of this that kind of mm. tell you more about who this person actually was. Um, but what really makes it a legend is that everybody's got a version of this story that they've heard mm -hmm. in the Mount Judy area and the Newton County area. There are a lot of parts that have been altered and exaggerated, and a lot of parts have been called to question historically. Yeah. The most historical version of it I've read, and it's not very interesting at all. <laughs> and I was more interested in like the, the story that's been passed around and altered. And I love that process where we, as a group, we gradually edit these stories and they become something that we, for some reason, collectively have decided to tell ourselves. And uh, I think it's a good story. The daughter of my people was taken from her home. And her mother in her grief and age was wintering alone I lift my eyes 
Sam Davis, he's one of the characters in this new release, The Legend of Sam Davis. How did this project come together? Well, I think that there's a number of things. One is just reconnecting to Arkansas after being away for a while. I lived in Florida for four years, and if you ever fall out of love with the Ozarks, go live in Florida uh, for a while. (laughs) Doesn't get much more different from the Ozarks than Florida. Yeah, I was there for Hurricane Charlie and listened to the wind just peeling the roof off of my home and between sinkholes and all that stuff, sinkholes, hurricanes, traffic, you know, razor-sharp plants, all these different things about Florida, you know, moving home was a good thing, you know. And uh, when I came back to Arkansas, you know, as a kid, I went to a, a really small school, Bergman, Arkansas, had 20 people in my graduating class and was in a hurry to get out and just felt like I'm not going to look back when I leave this place. And of course I did. And coming home, wanted to make a deeper connection with this place. And then I heard the music of Kelly and Donna Mulholland, Still on the Hill, and saw the way that they connected with stories from the Ozarks. And that just opened a world to me, you know, a way to see the Ozarks that was new. And so I was, you know, I kind of fell deeper in love with that. And uh, you and I were talking earlier about my day job. I work in a field where I'm put in contact with older people a lot. And I started to listen more and Mm. started to hear a lot of stories and ask questions about what they knew about things that happened near their homes. And and so all of those things kind of came together in my life to kind of lead me to a point where I was listening more and paying more attention to what was around me and uh, noticing stories like this when they presented themselves. Sam Davis in particular, I uh, took my kids on a hike there and I saw that it was a short hike that we could mm-hmm. and it's a that is a great outing for anyone to go on it's less than half a mile to get to this incredible view and not, and not a very hard walk but I took my kids out there and, uh, and then I, I was talking to an old timer uh, who lived nearby there and he asked me if I'd ever heard the story. And so that was Vernon Sexton, and he was the first one to tell me a version of the Sam Davis mm-hmm. story and a lot unfolded from that. So Sam Davis, he's only one of the characters in this project. Tell us a little bit about the Martin family. Well, the Martin family saga is drawn from the first three chapters, maybe four chapters of a book by Norman R. Martin called Up on the Buffalo. And Norman R. Martin was a Church of Christ preacher. I think he lived in Oklahoma, maybe at the time that he wrote these. Um, But he grew up around the Buffalo River. And he wrote these books about his family's origin as a way to kind of keep them on track, that he wanted them to know their story, which I think is a really beautiful thing to do is give your family their roots in a very concrete form. And so uh, his telling of how his family came to Arkansas, like starting in France, Henry Martin immigrated from France to the Blue Ridge Mountains in Georgia and joined a Cherokee tribe in Georgia, married a Cherokee woman and joined the tribe there. And after starting a farm and starting a family, was put on the Trail of Tears. And everything kind of unfolds from that, where they finally escape the Trail of Tears and wind up in Newton County. It's a great story. It's a great story. I love the telling of it. I feel like Norman R. Martin, the way that he wrote those chapters, that reminds me of reading like about Abraham and Sarah in the Bible. It's just, yeah. it's got this mythical quality that feels just, just amazing. I love unreliable narrators, and I think Norman R. Martin is a great unreliable narrator, and he's trustworthy in lots of ways. 
He wants to get the facts straight, and he wants to— his intentions are good, but he is very interested in his offspring remaining Church yeah. of Christ forever. Right. And it's so noticeable in the narrative. And that was fun to me to read as well, just like, just to see, okay, like he's really hammering this one point about yeah. how and when and where you're baptized <laughs> and making sure that everybody knows what is and isn't proper. And there are different characters in his stories that embody the values he wants to pass on, and then some that do the opposite. And uh, Curly and Tom definitely do the opposite. And so that's a dark twist in, in the way that that family story ends in the book. Debbie and Albert waited till the end of the war. It took them five years before they had a child. It came out wily, full head of curly black hair. They named him Albert Jr. They just called him Curly. And in a year he had a brother named Tom and Debbie never figured out what went wrong With Curly and Tom They raised him on the farm Planting and plowing Hoeing and weeding Put a switch to their behinds Debbie taught him how to read she learned him the Bible, baptized him in the creek. Circuit preacher didn't mind doing the job, but it never seemed to take for Curly and Tom. Whiskey and women, gambling and cheating, cussing and fighting, skipping out on chores. A grief to their mama, a shame to their daddy. Too big for whooping, prayers unanswered. And Debbie never figured out what went wrong with Curly and Tom. Over the past several years, there have been quite a few projects, both written and audio, about Newton County and the Buffalo River. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel this project either adds or continues the conversation about folklore in the area? Wow, I'm not sure. I know that Still in the Hill did an amazing project that none of this would have happened without hearing them. Still a river, right? Still a river, yeah, which it's, it's just wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. I think there are some darker stories on this. I have a, a real literary bent, and I'm really interested in stories like Flannery O'Connor told. And some of these stories kind of take that kind of tack, where it's something to ponder. Mm -hmm. And so some fans of Still on the Hill might miss some of the brighter moments, but we do have some laughter on this album and some sweetness, too. The one thing that is different is that we've got two song cycles on this album. Donna and I were talking about, after I found out about the story of Sam Davis, I bumped into her at a house concert one night, and I told her, I, I just found out about this thing, and I've been thinking about it. And she was writing a song about Sam Davis as well. Mm. And she managed to do this in one song, tell this story. And then she tells it very differently than I do. Yeah. And it ends very differently. It's all different. But I thought about it for months and couldn't figure out a way to write a song about Sam Davis until I started to give myself permission to tell it song by song and just to tell the very first part of the story. And I wrote a song where Sam explained to his mother that he was going to go after his kidnapped sister. Mm -hmm. And that was a song that I could write. I have a background in classical music and opera, and not as an opera singer, but as an opera buff. And I was yeah. a, a horn player in college, and you know, horn players in opera, you know, some of us are really excited about opera. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I started to think of it more as a folk opera and a song cycle. And so I wrote six songs about Sam Davis and three songs about the Martin family. And, mm -hmm. and that ability to go sequentially and not try to cram it all in gave me the ability to really explore the emotional depth of parts of the story that yeah. I wanted to focus on because the, there's a lot going on in these stories. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite bits of this project, whether it's, you know, songs on the album or artwork or some of the prose? Like what mm -hmm. what really kind of sticks out to you is just like you're really proud of it. There's a song called Granny Briscoe that tells the story of a midwife who served Newton County and the surrounding area into her 80s. And she passed away at 89, but she delivered over a thousand babies. And there's some photographs of her in the book, which is great to see her face. It's great to see pictures of her family. 
I want to tell a little bit of how we even got to that story. I had noticed as I was putting together the songs for the album that there was a point where every woman that was mentioned on the album was being abducted or rescued. And I thought, well, this is not... This is not acceptable. Right, this is not right. a good look. Yeah, and I don't want anybody to analyze this. And, uh, and I asked a lady named Donna Dodson, who works at the Newton County Historical Society, if she knew of any heroic women in Newton County that I could write a song about. And she pointed me to Granny Briscoe. And she had some other ideas as well, but she was really strong on Granny Briscoe being a really good person to know about. And so she put me on the trail of Granny Briscoe. And then I, I started meeting her descendants. And anyone that I met that had a last name Briscoe, I would ask. And mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, they were related to her. They knew the story really well. Mm-hmm. And they were incredibly proud of her. And it's just it's beautiful to, to ask somebody if they know about this obscure person who passed away in the 1960s mm-hmm. and just see their faces light up. Because she's still, to this day, a source of tremendous pride to her family. And so that's a beautiful moment in there uh, of light. I think, too, it's an example, too, with the book of how much the book can add to a project like this where you get to see pictures of her family, pictures of a birthday party of hers, which her birthday parties became events for Newton County because she delivered a thousand children. Right. Huge, huge service to the, the families in the area. So that's a bright spot for me. Sometimes the calls came at midnight, the crack of dawn, the dinner time. Didn't matter when those calls came in. Lizzie feared no dark of night. They would call her past the river or to the mountains other side. She'd climb a ladder through stony cleft, passing through the needle's eye. Lizzie Briscoe knew the way through the darkness to the light. One thousand souls were born with Lizzie Briscoe as their guide. Oh, she was side for we. And the hills see her coming day and night, riding hard against the clock. For the sake of mother and child, she was the kind of help you long to see. So you mentioned that this release is not only an album, it's a book that's a collection of poetry, prose, maps, artwork. What was your inspiration for putting this whole package together rather than just doing an album? One thing was I I just felt like there was so much that I wanted to tell people about all these stories and all these people that wouldn't be able to be crammed in a song. And you can't cram a photograph into a song. And I I wanted to share all that, you know. I think, too, like the maps, the scope of the Sam Davis story or the scope of the Martin family story. I wanted people to be able to visualize that in a way that it can fly by so quickly in a song, but when you look at the map, it starts to become really evident, like what the scope of of the story we're in. And so my mother painted the maps, um, which was wonderful. She's been an artist all my life, and a lady named Dreama Phoenix did the artwork for each song. There's an image for each song. Liz Lester from the UVA Press did the layout for the book. Had a lot of people involved in making this the look kind of matched the sound of, of this project. Mm-hmm. And and those were all things I wanted to share. There were newspaper stories for one of the songs in particular that just adds so much to see the way that this was re- represented in the media of the day, what had happened. It was kind of unthinkable to leave all that unshared. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you share something online, it's kind of not the same. It just yeah. you know, disappears out there. And I think, too, there were some aspects of this where I wasn't sure that would make much sense without some tangible context. (laughs) And so I wanted to pass that on as well, hoping that it would connect a little more. We were talking before we started recording. You've been working on this for quite a while. I have, yeah. Uh, Writing on this started around 2015, maybe a little earlier, and the artwork and everything has been in process for a really long time. And the project is really completed in, in 2021, but in the midst of the pandemic, we weren't sure what to do with this project mm-hmm. and made it available for sale online, but weren't really able to perform it or promote it mm-hmm. and decided to just kind of sit on it. And then also my bass player, George Holcomb, who also played several other instruments with us, became ill. 
and we were waiting for George to get better. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, George did not get better, and we lost him in, in uh, I think, February. Right. But his contribution to this project is is really wonderful. His clarinet playing on this, his wife said it's the prettiest thing he ever played, and it really is very, very beautiful. Wonderful bass playing, and then some pretty funny vocals, too. Mm-hmm. On uh, Looky There, you get to hear George uh, goofing off, and that's really fun. That was Aaron Smith speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis last week. The Fayetteville release show for The Legend of Sam Davis is at 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon at the Ozark Mountain Smokehouse on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Fayetteville. Admission is free. Another release show takes place at 7 p.m. Saturday, July 22nd at Hibernia Irish Tavern in Little Rock. Tickets, $20. You can find out more at AaronSmithSongs.com. During this past month of June, KUAF held a fundraiser to help continue to bring our listeners the news and entertainment that they enjoy. From our staff here at KUAF to all of our members, listeners, and contributors, thank you for your consistent support. The Amazium is celebrating a birthday Saturday. We'll have more about that just ahead. A reminder that it's not just news on KUAF. Every Sunday through Thursday night, beginning at 8, after the evening edition of Ozarks at Large, Peter Vandergraaff has great classical music to take you all the way through the night and the early morning. And at any time, you can hear classical music on KUAF2. You can find KUAF2 by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. It's also available for free on your HD radio, your digital radio, either in your car or at home. And you can also stream our all-classical station by looking for the KUAF2 tab at KUAF.com. KUAF is your source for news and entertainment on the air and in your podcast feed. With podcasts like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, The Lunch Hour, and The R Word. You can rely on KUAF to bring you a diverse lineup of culture and news you need whenever you need it. Find our entire lineup of podcasts at KUAF.com slash podcasts. Almost any early afternoon in the Scott Family Amazium lobby in Bentonville sounds like this. Families either leaving or entering. And it's the quietest part of the Amazium by design. For the past eight years, there have been thousands of opportunities to experience science and technology hands-on. Saturday, the Amazium will celebrate its eighth birthday, and last week, Sam Dean, the executive director, talked with me in his office about the planned celebration. We're, we're a museum for kids and families. We have to celebrate birthdays hard. So we're so excited. You know, one of the things about your eighth birthday is it's often, a, I believe it's a, a bronze moment and it's also a clay moment. So we're really playing up the idea of working with clay. God, we've got um, the Wheelmobile coming up here. We've got Fifth Street Studios. We're gonna do a lot of activities with, with making clay, shaping clay, forming it, and celebrating our eighth birthday and eight years of awesome science learning um, all at the same time. You say clay and bronze. So that's specifically for birthdays or are we talking the eighth anniversary of something? It's more the anniversary. Yeah, so it's both our birthday and our anniversary. We, we mix those together. Um, and by the way, there's never a bad time to do ice cream. So we'll have an ice cream truck out here. So when you heat up, you can cool down in that mid-July uh, heat. What are, what are the dates and the times and all of that? Well, it's our eighth birthday is uh, Saturday, uh, July 15th. And um, we're open from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock that day. And we'll be running activities all day. Although members remember... On Saturdays, you get in an hour early, so come on in at 9 o'clock, and we'll get started with you. Do you remember your eighth birthday? Um, I remember, I don't remember my eighth birthday, but I do know what things I would have been doing. Riding a bike, trying to find the right Spider-Man shirt, because I was a huge Spider-Man fan, and um, yeah, uh, looking for whose backyard we were going to take over and make forts and do, uh, you know, we, we always kind of went from house to house and figured out what forts we're going to climb in, what what trees we were going to to scamper around in, and, um, you know, probably what flower beds we were going to accidentally trample on the way. All right. So I don't think Spider-Man will be here on the eighth birthday, but, but the sense of adventure, the sense of making a fort, how 
How can that be manifest here? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we I love about the the Amazium and our team is that it's 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 both the name of a place, but I, I would almost say it's we're a verb as much as anything else. And it's this idea that you can shape the world and make the world. And what better material than clay to be able to dive into? So for eighth anniversary, it feels great to be able to you know make clay impressions. You know, to be able to shape and form. Uh, 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 bowls to be able to sculpt in a, a cake decorating station with with specific tools and spray bottles to be able to make your own. So it's really about having an imagination, the right materials, and goodness gracious, the time and space to be able to do it and then do it together, right? So you can do it with your siblings, with your parents, or what we love here is it's a it's a mixing pot of families from all over the region who get a chance to play with each other. Kids are so great at making friends as soon as they show up here and. It's wonderful to see that imagination play out um, uh, within generations and between generations. So, so what will do you know what it will look like if if I sat down with a partner and we wanted to sculpt something out of clay? Will will we be at a table? Yeah, well, in some places you'll be making small bowls at a at a at a building station. That'll be the Fifth Street Market. Some spots you're going to be learning how to throw pottery with wheelmobile. Uh, Judy and Jean will be teaching how to use polymer clay, a different kind of clay that's really good for um, uh, jewelry making and, and you know, making earrings, etc. So I, th I think it's not only do you get a chance to play with your imagination, you get to learn a whole lot of different techniques and tools for working with this material that is both common and uncommon. Looking further down 2023, Tinkerfest is back. For, before we talk about what Tinkerfest 2023 looks like and where it looks like it does, just the idea behind Tinkerfest is to have fun and build and use your mind. So Tinkerfest is is one of our signature events here at the Amazium, and it's it's one we share with some museums around the country. It's this idea that that we all love to make and build and tinker. We like to tear things apart. We love to. Uh, use our creativity on new materials or familiar materials like cardboard, but you come and it, it's this full smorgasbord of of uh, 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 makers in, in this community. We'll be taking apart a car, taking apart a car, like an honest to goodness car. One of our favorite activities is is our car take apart. And you know we work with uh, working with uh, Gan Nunnally, um, which which is so wonderful to bring a car out and have it prepared. And we have kids come out and work with um, mechanics and car enthusiasts and and other uh, construction team to, to to bit by bit disassemble a car. No smashing cars. It's using wrenches and screwdrivers and piece by piece. Really, it's almost like locusts on, you know, on a, on a cornfield, you know, slowly stripping apart bit by bit. And the idea is that you get into a car and you get to, you know, what, what's inside a car door? Well, the best way to find out is to open up a car door. What's under an engine? What's a radiator look like? How do these things connect? Well, the best way to do it is to be able to actually get your hands inside an engine block or be able to go and remove a seat and see what's inside. So we give kids tools and we give the right facilitators there. And throughout the day, piece by piece, this car gets taken apart, not just by kids, but by adults as well. It's a, it's a great communal activity. By the end of the day, Kyle, you, you can see this, you see what looks like the, the husk of a framework of a vehicle as kids are so diligent and carefully deconstructing this thing piece by piece. And then next weekend it gets put back together? It gets, uh, it has to get reassembled to be towed, uh, to be uh, uh, partially to be towed off uh, off site. So we have to, the f first year we did uh, this, our car take apart here, um, we had a, a, a tow truck come and the challenge was, is we had to gather up all the things and shrink wrap them together. Otherwise you can't run down the highway to take it to the, to the junkyard. So we had to quickly invent a way to remove all the pieces all together at the same time. And this year you're partnering with, with like-minded museums in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and Little Rock? Yeah, we're excited. I mean, the, the Tinkerfest movement um, uh, really started uh, down in Little Rock, um, uh, down at the Museum of Discovery, and, and, and the Amazium uh, uh, picked it up in, in when we first opened our doors uh, uh, eight years ago on July 15th. And what we found is we, as we've been bringing museums in to help us throw our festival here, this idea has spread. And so there are a lot of other museums around the country that are doing Tinkerfest now. 
we've sent team out to, to Washington and California and, and to New England to be able to help other museums do Tinkerfest. Well, this year, there are four museums that are lined up. Um, uh, every weekend in September, there's a Tinker, there are four, four Tinkerfests in a row. Museum of Discovery down in Little Rock, Science Museum of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City, the Discovery Lab in, in Tulsa, and the Amazium. Four weeks, four Tinkerfests. You could bat for a complete cycle and hit each four of those. Amazium will be there at all four. We'd love to see our community go out to hit all four as well. Sam Dean is the executive director of the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville. The eighth birthday celebration is Saturday from 10 until 5 with an hour's early admission for members. Tinkerfest will take place in September. You can find out much more at amazium.org. Our conversation took place last week in Sam's office. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. In 1971, Texas Minister James Ellison founded the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, a white supremacist gang. Five years later, he bought a 228-acre farm near Bull Shoals Lake for a CSA compound where the rural terrain isolated them from law enforcement. It became a militia training ground where the 100 or so CSA members could prepare for an anticipated race war. Complaints about the group from local citizens led federal, state, and local lawmen to raid the site in 1985. After a three-day standoff, the agency's weapons, explosives, gold, and 30 gallons of potassium cyanide the CSA had planned to use to poison the water supplies of several large cities. Evidence from the site led to charges against several CSA members, and Ellison was convicted of Weapons and RICO Act violations. He negotiated a reduced sentence by testifying against leaders of the Aryan nations of Idaho. The CSA effectively disappeared after the raid. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Tomorrow's already Thursday. Where did this week go? That means on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, Timothy Dennis will invite me into the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. He'll co-host with me and he'll give us a rundown of some of the live music for the next seven days. Plus a new sound perimeter from Leo Uribe and the return of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal after a two-week vacation. All of that and much more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. and when you like on your schedule by downloading or subscribing to the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's free. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Altus. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors this Wednesday included Jacqueline Froelich and Timothy Dennis. Matthew Moore delivered news and sound about the UAMS-FCC collaboration. Additional reporting today was provided by the hardworking newsroom at KUAR in Little Rock. Our membership director at KUAF is Brent Ratliff. We are back with you tomorrow at noon and 7. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us today. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the 2023 Summer Forest Concert Series every Saturday night in July. It brings national and local acts to the museum's North Forest, where visitors can enjoy live music and dancing under the trees while surrounded by art installations by Dale Chihuly and more. Tickets and lineup at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology September 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. This three-day festival features art installations and experiences from artists including Little Sims, Big Wild, The Far Side, plus a music lineup of over 50 artists. For tickets and information, format-festival.com.